0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Chaitan Venkatesh, CEO of MacroMeta, a developer tool that's raised $38 million in funding. Chaitan, thanks for chatting with me today. Hi, Brett. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, so I am an
1: engineer turned startup company founder and CEO. I've been doing this for 22 years now. And this is MacroMeta is now my fourth data infrastructure startup. So it's a space that I've been in for many years, and it's a space that I continue to be extremely fascinated with, and I think it's also a very important space in terms of where developers and customers are trying to innovate, you know, with their next generation of data-powered applications on. And how have you seen the space evolve over the last 22 years? Oh, wow. I mean, that's the whole history of computer science right there in those 22 years, right? I mean, we went from the personal computer, the old IBM PC and the XT and, you know, that whole thing, right? To the uh, advent of client server computing after that, the invention of the internet, and then, you know, mobile computing and then cloud computing, right? And underneath all of that, the data infrastructure has always been one of the most important types of infrastructures for building applications, especially the minute we sort of moved into a shared model with client server computing where, you know, there was a shared server that many people accessed different types of application services on. And as that sort of went into a more cloud-like architecture and broken of web services and things like that, the data infrastructure probably is sort of like the giant beating heart of all of that stack. And so that evolution has been really fascinating because we've gone from being able to build applications that maybe served a dozen customers to a point where maybe in the 90s, an application was being used by a few thousand people at the same time, we thought it was a pretty big application, to now where people build applications on the cloud and you can have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of potential users, you know, hitting the application at the same time. So the scales have changed incredibly. The complexity has changed. Also, as a result, it's a lot more complex. And then there's just a lot of more risk, in, especially in things like cybersecurity, which is really a whole domain onto itself now. And the data infrastructure layer, again, just being such a critical part of it because, you know, applications need data means that, you know, this is an area that is very challenging to stay on top of. And you really need a smart team of people to work with
0: who can help you build solutions, you know, that address these types of emerging new opportunities. Makes a lot of sense. And what about Silicon Valley in general? How have you seen Silicon Valley change over the last two decades? You know, I can speak maybe credibly to the last 15
1: years. I haven't been here two decades, moved here about 15 years back in the Valley. And I think it continues to just be at the center of the universe when it comes to tech. As much as every year you read articles about, you know, such and such city becoming the next Silicon Valley or that you don't need to be in Silicon Valley anymore, you can do a startup anywhere, And it's true. The truth is that, you know, the opportunities that exist over here to find smart, passionate people to work with who have relevant domain expertise, who also have sort of an instinct for risk and company formation and, you know, all the startup challenges that come with trying to go out and build something in the great unknown unknown, right? Those are all things that I think make Silicon Valley still very unique. And you don't get that to the same level of maturity and sophistication anywhere else in the world, whether that's, you know, in Europe, whether that's in, you know, the Middle East or, you know, in emerging economies, growth economies in Asia, it'll get there maybe, but the Valley tends to still, I think, attract the best of the best. And there's a culture of startup building and knowledge and deep understanding of all facets of that over here that makes it unique within that i've seen a lot of change in the last 15 years i think the way we build startups has changed considerably where you know we used to build a startup and potentially try and build a product in 2 to 3 years and get to your first revenues right in the, in year 3 now you got to do all that in year 1 so it's really compressed in the old days you used to go and get a you never did a seed round you sort of went and did a series a round when you know your product had some legs and you know you wanted to put it in front of more customers Nowadays, there's a pre-seed round and a seed round and a post-seed round and a Series A and, you know, a post-Series A. And there's just all these different types of financings for very granular stages of a startup as well. So I think Silicon Valley and the way it deploys capital has considerably changed. And I also think that work has become more specialized. I don't think full stack developers cut it anymore. You need specialists, folks who understand front end, middle and back and, you know, really have very deep. But narrow knowledge of things, you know, when you're building products, especially in the data domain that I operate in. So that's probably the third thing that I see has changed is substantially people have become specialists and with very deep specialization in, in different aspects of the stack and the types of applications that are being built. Other than that, it's gotten health expensive uh, over the last 15 years. <laughs> that's probably the other thing that probably stands out. You know, we were fortunate, I think, to come and settle at a time when it was still reasonable to do that. And the disparity between San Francisco and the Bay Area and different parts of the country was not as as great as it is today. I really hope that you know that's something we can address because that's probably the number one constraint and limit on actually smart people, young people, you know, folks who are starting their careers coming and settling over here. I worry that we're going to end up with a generation of old folks who got here when real estate was still you know reasonable, and unfortunately, everyone else is priced out. So it's just going to be an old population of engineers and company builders that doesn't get replenished with you know, new ideas and, and new energy.
0: Well, hey, there's a lot of commercial real estate that seems to be open in downtown SF. So at least hopefully that'll be converted to residential and they'll solve some of that problem. I hope so. I really hope so. Yeah. And two questions we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a CEO and as a founder. Is there a specific CEO that you admire the most? And if so, who is it and what do you admire about them?
1: Yeah, I think Jamie Dimon comes to mind. They have, you know, the CEO of JPMorgan Chase. I see in someone like Jamie Dimon so many incredible values and principles that he operates from. I think one is just one of the largest banks in the world. It's a giant multinational corporation that needs to deal with an incredibly complex and dynamic environment. Customers, you know, have so much of choice when it comes to financial services. There are startups they can go to. There are established other banks they can go to. But I think JPMorgan just has an incredible innovation culture because of Jamie Dimon. And that comes across in the way they build products and digital services and in the way they serve their customers. So I think I look up to him a lot because he's someone who I think has to, you know, analyze and internalize a very vast surface of knowledge about reality, about what's happening in the markets, what's happening within his organization, what's happening, you know, with broad macroeconomic conditions. And translate all of that into, you know, operational strategy, into product innovation, into building and channeling a very large workforce of hundreds of thousands of people in hundreds of countries. I think he's the master of scale, frankly. And if you put a gun to my head and there are several people I
0: could name, but if you really put a gun to my head and said, name one CEO, be Jamie Dimon. Nice. That's such a great call out. I get, uh, I get major presidential vibes from Jamie Dimon. I don't know if that's uh, true, but there seems to be a lot of speculation that he's going to run for president of the U.S., which would be pretty cool. It would be very cool. I think someone of his caliber and expertise and, and temperament could be a great precedent for our amazing country. Absolutely agree. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? And this can be a business book or could just be a personal book that's really influenced how you view the world. Yeah, you know, and and I'm going to
1: break your rule and maybe talk about two books, because this is just extraordinarily hard to name one book. But I think there are two books that I'll call out. The first one is, and by the way, I think Bill Gates called this out a couple of weeks back, but it's a book that I read a few years, and it's it's The Inner Game of Tennis. And it's an incredible book that talks about how to fundamentally learn the right habits and the right ways of thinking and turn them into, you know, the core set of values that you operate from. So that when you're in the heat of competitive moments, right, you can still sort of automatically express these good habits. You don't have to think about them. They become second nature to you. And, you know, the small anecdote over here, my dad is a competitive tennis player. He's really great at it. You know, he played competitive tennis at almost the national level, you know, in back in India uh, where, where he grew up and where I've spent a part of my childhood before I moved to the States. And he always wanted me to be a great tennis player. And I think I was talented from you know, the shot making and the technicals of tennis, but I just did not understand the inner game of tennis, the mental part of it, the spiritual part of it, of playing sport and things like that. So I was, I struggled a lot in competition. And I think as I went into the professional arena and built my career and, you know, and then became a founder, for example, many of those challenges have equivalents in, in the professional world. And as I read this book a few years back, I realized there was such you know, great advice in that book for how to handle those moments, how to think about certain types of problems, et cetera. That had I found that book when I was, you know, in my preteens or teens, I think it would have been an incredibly valuable book for me. But I still think it's incredibly valuable because there's so much I learned from it. And also, I realized that, hey, you know, I've also evolved and come to the same conclusions as that author and, and realized those lessons on my own as well. So it was a good way for me to validate my own experiences and some of the learnings that I've had over there. So Inner Game of Tennis, I think, is probably my number one book. And then I read a book recently that also had a pretty interesting you know, set of principles and it had a big impact on me. It's called Be Your Future Self Now. And it sounds really new-agey, hokey-pokey, but it's not. Because I think what this author does, his name is Dr. Benjamin something or the other. can't remember his last name, sorry. But look it up on Amazon, Be Your Future Self Now. What he does is he forces you to really be clear about what you're working towards. And I think that's one of the things that founders and CEOs and startup people really need is a very clear understanding of where they want to go. Because if you sort of drift along, startups can be extremely hard and can be punitive you know, if you drift along. And I've seen a lot of folks struggle with that. You know, earlier in my career, I struggled with it myself. But understanding how to set goals for yourself, for your team, and more importantly, having a very clear vision of what you want to grow into is so important. And it acts as your you know, template and compass for you to grow into that. This book actually crystallized, I think, 15, 18 years of learnings for me in 45, 50 pages, which is great to read because you can go back and sort of refresh yourself very quickly you know, about what it takes, you know, or maybe you can do a quick assessment and see where your gaps are in terms of you know how rich your vision is and whether you really painted all the colors and all the detail of your vision. Because if you don't have that clarity, there's no way you can give it to others. And this was a
0: pretty amazing book in that respect. Amazing. Yeah, I found it's Benjamin Hardy, I think, right? Oh, Benjamin Hardy. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the, I couldn't remember the last name. Yeah. No worries. Just shouting it out there for the listeners. Very cool. Those are two books I have not heard of, and it's very refreshing to have a founder come on and not say the hard thing about hard things or zero mm-hmm. to one, so... It's value. the <laughs> value. Oh, those are good books too, but you know, I don't think they're necessarily the books that I call out as having the greatest influence on me. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, let's switch gears here now and let's talk about what you're building. So can we start with the origin story behind the company?
1: Yeah, well, our origin story is kind of like, you know, it starts really in the technical domain. Both me and my co-founder, Durga Gokina, who's our CTO and head of engineering, we're both from the distributed systems domain. And so... You know, over the last 10 years, I think it was 2013, 2014, when we were both working on our last startup together, that we started to ask ourselves a you know, pretty important question, which is, okay, this cloud thing is huge. And obviously everyone's gonna be on the cloud by the end of this decade. What comes after that? And, you know, when you're sitting in 2013 and 2014 and you're trying to think about what, you know, the world looks like in 2023, which is where we are now, you tend to think it's more of the same. And I've been wrong every time I've sort of linearly projected, you know, that it's more more of the same. You know, things get faster, things get better, things get cheaper. Yeah, they would do those things. But really, the big life-disrupting or innovating innovations are completely unexpected. And so as we were thinking about it, we knew that whatever came after cloud was sort of going to be, in many ways, the thing that did things that the cloud can't do. You know, it wasn't just a faster... Better, cheaper cloud, it was actually orthogonally opposite to cloud. And so, if you want to understand what it is, you've got to go and ask, What does the cloud not do well? And when we started to ask the question, What does the cloud not do well? it became pretty clear to us quickly that because of the way the cloud is technically architected, you know, in these giant data centers in remote regions around the world, and every time we use an application, our mobile phone or web browser needs to talk to a backend server that's very far away in a different country in a different continent, usually, you know, things get really slow. And the more and more humans go online, the more and more the services that are interesting to us are digital data-driven services, you know, AI, ML services, and underneath all of them is just data. And so if you can make data faster to process, faster to understand and faster to act on, That's going to be incredibly valuable in the post-cloud world. The challenges of almost all our computer science is designed for handling large amounts of data, but not fast amounts of data. And so we saw an opportunity to build a new kind of a company and a technology that allowed data to become much, much faster and serve real-time experiences anywhere in the world. So we built the platform that we call the Global Data Network, which consists of a software layer that connects hundreds of regions around the world, hundreds of little data centers around the world and makes data available in all these regions locally so that when your application that you're using, right, you know, it needs data. It doesn't go, you know, out of the country into a different data center in a different part of the world to get it. It's always available in in literally the same city that you're in or maybe in the same state if it's not in the same city, but it's no more than 50 milliseconds away from wherever you are as a human being with some sort of an internet connected device. 50 milliseconds is crazy fast. I mean, to put that in perspective, if you look at a professional athlete, right, their reaction time, the best athletes have a reaction time of about 75 milliseconds. And the average human has a reaction time that's over 100 milliseconds, right? So something happens 100 milliseconds later, you react to it. So literally in a second, a human being can maybe react eight or 10 times. Their brain can only comprehend 10 events in a second if they're exceptionally attentive average human probably, you know, can grasp two or three events in a second. A professional athlete, you know, might be able to get up to 15 events in a second. We've built an application platform and data network that can deliver events data and data-driven services and experiences in 50 milliseconds, which is faster than the brain can comprehend it. And that becomes really important in a world where we're relying more and more on digital services on our mobile phone, where we're interacting with people virtually where potentially we're going to go and, you know, get a lot of our data and news and social interactions through augmented reality or virtual reality, where we're potentially substituting e-sports for physical sports. You know, the world's changing a lot. And you need a new kind of a cloud infrastructure to support that new world. Apple's going to bring out a virtual reality device later this year. That could potentially be a $100 billion platform for all these next generation virtual reality, augmented reality, and dare I say the ugly word metaverse type of use cases right and for that you're going to need a new kind of a cloud that does low latency really fast data that's faster than the human mind and that's what we've built amazing
0: and what market category are you in is this part of an existing category transforming an existing category are you creating a, a totally new category of tool here
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it's sort of maybe at some blurry gray area between creating a new category and extending an existing category. Fundamentally, what we've done is creating a new category that we call the global data network. It doesn't exist because there's really no network out there that pushes data and allows these types of services for data to be built. But at the same time, there are analogs for that in the old world. You know, as an example, there's something called a content delivery network or a CDN. That you know is a very important piece of infrastructure that most people have never heard about. But frankly, without the CDN, the internet would be unusable. The CDN is what allows a website to potentially serve you know, tens of thousands of users. A CDN is what allows you know almost all our modern applications and websites to operate at the scale where a billion users can be online, a billion humans can be online, and you know can go to Google and can go to all these different web services and make them usable. The CDN is really a way to extend the scale of the web and to make the web accessible at a cost point where billions of humans can use it. Now, it works for the web, but it doesn't work for the cloud. The cloud is really a set of application services, and it needs something like the CDN, but the CDN can't handle the cloud because it's a very different technology. And so our platform, the GDN, the global data network, is kind of like a CDN, Because what the CDN does for the web, by making it scalable and cost efficient and high performance, we do the same thing for cloud and data. And so in some ways, it's sort of an extension of that old CDN category because it looks and smells like that. But it's a completely new category because no
0: such infrastructure exists for cloud applications. We're the only game in town for that. And when you were first starting the company, did you start with that intention that this would essentially become its own new market category? You know, I love to say yes, but I wish I was that smart. It's more organic, I
1: think, as we were just fascinated by the idea that a network like ours could potentially solve some immediate use cases that customers had and boring things like e-commerce, right? A simple example, you hit a website and, you know, you'll quickly dump the website. If it's a shopping website, for example, if search takes too long, you will go somewhere else or if the information is inaccurate. So we started with boring problems like that. And as we built out and customers started to adopt our platform for solving some pretty Unique problems, you know. that's when we realized that there might be an opportunity to build a category in and of itself. But no, we didn't conceive of it in this grandiose way when we started out. We kind of were just trying to solve a couple of interesting problems that we thought customers would pay us a little bit of money for.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And I would have to imagine that's what the majority of market categories are created, right? It's not something that happens from day one. It's more of an organic journey that leads them there. I think so. I don't think I've come across any
1: category creating product that was by design. Almost all of them sound accidental. And if by chance, I think founders or people have said, I'm going to go create that category, they've probably failed when trying to do that. It's almost a whimsical, accidental thing, I think, uh, rather than a conscious and a a directed thing. Maybe there are people who do it, but I certainly don't know anyone.
0: Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And in terms of adoption, are there any numbers that you can share that demonstrate the traction and the growth that you're seeing right now? Yeah, you know, I think we've gone from zero to 60 plus paying
1: customers in, you know, 18, 20 months at this point. And it ranges from some of the largest customers in the world, large enterprise customers like uh, the third biggest internet service provider in the U.S., Cox Communications, to the largest wireless network, Verizon, to some of the largest web services companies in the world use our platform. One of the largest cloud and CDN companies is an investor and a partner. The name of the company is Akamai. And, you know, all of that has fueled a spectacularly fast amount of growth and adoption of our platform in just 18, 24 months. What we've built is a very hard problem to solve. So it took us a couple of years to get the underlying technology, you know, viable and working at scale but once we got it there you know we what we've found is that it's a problem that doesn't have a obvious solution and you know our solutions pretty obvious for this and there's a lot of demand for it and i think even though it's early days and you know we've gone from zero to 60 in 18 24 months what i'm excited about is that we're probably going to triple or quadruple you know in the next year and the year after given that more and more Customers are now starting to realize that they need an infrastructure like ours to be able to differentiate themselves, you know, going forward. And so our order book is just oversubscribed at this point, knock on wood, and we just have a lot of demand for our platform and product. And so we're heavily investing
0: and in fulfilling that demand right now. And what percentage of those 60 came from founder-led sales, as opposed to, you know, being closed by other Team members. Because that's something that a lot of the founders that we interview on the show talk about is, you know, that making that transition from founder led and having a sales team. So, what was that journey like for you? And are there any numbers you can share there?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the majority of them are founder led because it was just me and my co founder. And we started to really build a sales force only about 12 months back. And we've added up, you know, a few really smart and, you know, energetic folks into the sales organization. So, I'd say, you know, out of the 60, Maybe about 30, 35 were founder-led, 40 probably is sort of where I would say the founder-led you know, sales motion was, and then we transitioned it to much more of a rep-driven model, and then you, know, a partner-driven model. And so today, the remainder of that thir- you know 20 accounts, I'd say maybe you know 15 of them are, have been sold and closed by my colleagues in the sales organization. And maybe four or five are pure partner-led, where the partner just sold our solution and, and then closed it. And that's
0: starting to become a bigger. You know, growth piece for us. And were there any lessons that you learned as you made that transition away from founder-led sales? Oh, lots, I think. I think the
1: biggest challenge you have in founder-led sales is that the founder tends to have very deep domain expertise and things are just obvious to them because they are so context-rich in the problem. They're They're obsessed with the problem. They've been thinking about it for years and it's the first thing they think about when they wake up and it's the last thing they think about when they go to bed. And so I think the biggest challenge you have when you bring in, you know, and start building a sales force is how do you give them enough context and understanding to be able to be effective in, you know, positioning the product and understanding whether the product is a real solution to what the customer needs. And then, you know, how do you go about solving it? Qualification, I think, is the biggest challenge that, you know, the sales reps have because they don't know how to qualify a deal. Everything looks like it's a fit for an early stage product because the early stage product literally you know, is embryonic and it can become anything, it can do anything. So the rep feels like, hey, I can solve every possible problem with this. And I think a lot of the teams really struggle with that phase and nailing down exactly what they're going to do and what they're going to walk away from. Learn to say no and to which customer and why, right? That qualification is probably the most important thing that transition between founder-led to sales-led has. You know, subsequent to that, I think institutionalizing that knowledge and turning it into a repeatable... Process where as you hire more people, they can you know easily on board understand how to sell and then go and become productive as quickly. That process is sort of the next step, and I think that's where most founders will struggle because to them it all seems obvious that people should know these things. But the truth is, when someone you hire someone to come in and run sales, you know they're going to have a fairly broad understanding of things, but not necessarily as deep as the founder does. And you know, for technical products, that can
0: be the difference between you know, qualifying a deal correctly versus, you know, wasting your time with the customer that never going to buy. Makes a lot of sense. And, and that's super useful insights to have for our listeners. Another question I wanted to ask you is, you know, getting to 60 customers, I'm sure that's not easy. And rising above the noise today is very, very difficult to do because there's so much competition and just so much noise out there. What would you say you've gotten right there? And how did you rise above the noise and capture the attention of those customers? Yeah, I think The culture of my company is kind of unique. We've got
1: a big focus on what we call the three H's. You know, we call it humility, honesty, and heartfulness. And yeah, every company has culture and values. I think everybody, you know, says these things, but this is my fourth company. And I've realized how important that is, that you sort of have this culture that is prescriptive, that is something that you really ascribe and commit yourself to and try and live that every day as a team. One of the, I think, consequential and positive benefits of that is that we have a very authentic and unique voice as a company. We don't market like traditional companies do with a lot of hyperbolic bullshit, you know, a lot of claims, you know, a lot of we're the best and, you know, chest thumping. And and in fact, when you say there's a lot of noise in the market, that's what the noise is. Everyone's trying to outshine and outdo the next one, right? By shouting louder, And so we've done the opposite, which is we've let our product and our technology do the talking for us. And we focused very much on, you know, enabling customer success and customers to be successful and advocate for us. It's a really hard job because it takes a long time to build those 60 customers as a result. But, you know, once you start to get recognized for having an innovative product that's reliable, that's dependable and a team that stands behind it. Good things automatically come. You know, later this year, you'll hear about things that customers are building with us at enormous scales. I mean, we've got customers who are frankly building something that's as big as YouTube right now on top of our platform, and it's going to serve, you know, 100 million plus users worldwide. There are very few companies that can actually deliver a platform at that scale. And we're incredibly fortunate that we have a team that's been able to build a platform that can support such large web services, right? And so it allows us to cut through the bullshit because nobody's done it. We're the only ones who've actually done it at that scale. There are very few companies that have done it. Sure, Facebook has done it. Sure, Google has done it. But then you sort of go to the next year and ask, you know, where are the startups that can do these things? A lot of them claim they can do it, but have they actually done it? No, we've actually done it. And we've got maybe six or seven of the world's biggest, most gnarly customers, right, in terms of demanding a certain scale, a certain type of performance. And we've put them in production and we've made them successful. And I think that's allowed us, that reputation that we've been able to do it at the scale with these types of big demanding customers has really been the secret to growing you know, so quickly.
0: Amazing. And last question here for you. If we zoom out into the future, what's the three-year vision for the company? Yeah, I think there are three horizons that we think about
1: as we think about the next three years. The first horizon is sort of where do we want our customers to get value from us as a platform? And over there, you know, our focus really is on helping customers take advantage of real-time data and data opportunities. Today, you know, you really can't do anything in real-time because by the time something happens in the world, you collect information about it, bring it into the cloud, analyze it, process it, you know, feed it into your AI or your machine learning and get something out. It's too late. And it's too damn expensive to create that loop for your data even, right? But the truth is that almost... Every digital service in the future is going to be real-time. It's going to be aware of what's happening in your environment. It's going to you know, incorporate all those variables. And it's going to assist the way you do your work, the way you entertain yourself. All of those things will be augmented by EIML powered by data. And so our big focus for us is how do we guarantee that we can deliver data and events at trillion events scale, right? where trillions of events are happening worldwide and our platform can carry that and turn that into knowledge and actuation for our customers. So that's sort of a big area for us. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, turning that into something that's simple that any programmer can use in their work. You know, As long as they know a little bit of JavaScript and a little bit of you know, how the web works, they should be able to use our platform. It should not require you know, a master's degree or even a bachelor's degree to use our product. That's sort of that big focus we have. That's, that's one area. The second area is we want to be a company that really is incorporated and sold by partners rather than directly by ourselves because you know partners tend to be the trusted advisors to lots and lots of customers. Obviously, you know we can't go and build relationships fast enough with everyone. Our partners are out there who already have that. And so we want to go and partner them. And so becoming a partner-friendly organization is sort of the second one that I care a lot about for the next three years. And the third thing I care about just from a long-term perspective is something that we call carbon-conscious computing. And it's something that we're making a lot of investments in at Macrometa. And what it is, is really simple. You know, by 2035, data centers and cloud computing will be the biggest, if not one of the three biggest contributors to carbon and global warming and climate change. And, you know, that's because just the amount of energy that we're going to need to, you know, provide ML services around data and et cetera is just enormous and it's a big environmental impact. Now, programmers today don't really understand the consequences, you know, from an ecological standpoint or from a climate standpoint of what it costs when they build an application. You know, I woke up last night with this great idea in my head to build the next Twitter, right? Something that's better than Mastodon, for example. I'll go out, I'll bang some code out, I'll put it out there, and I'll charge some money for it. The truth is I actually don't know, you know, how much is it costing me in terms of number of grams of carbon you know, that my application is emitting as a consequence of consuming energy, for example. Where is that carbon coming from? Is it coming from renewable resources? Is it coming from you know, non-renewable? Is it coming from fossil fuels? So we're building awareness of that deeply into our platform so that when programmers use our platform, they don't just know the financial cost of how much it costs to run an app. They also know the ecological cost. It'll tell you exactly how many grams of carbon you know, footprint is being created by the application. And then we can bring in AI ML and we can optimize that. We can help the customer build apps that are more energy efficient, that are more carbon efficient. And I think that's sort of a big deal because the more we can make our customers and developers aware of what the footprint of their application is in terms of carbon cost, you know, that awareness is going to drive a change in their behavior and they're going to be far more responsible in how they write code. And so that's the third horizon for us, which is providing the tooling for people to build carbon-conscious computing and data experiences that minimize energy use and minimize ecological footprint, you know, when they write apps.
0: Wow, that's incredibly exciting. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today's interview. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, so follow Macrometa at
1: www.macrometa.com. That's our website. Come sign up, use our platform. I'm on Twitter at Chetan underscore, my first name, C-H-E-T-A-N underscore. You can find me there. And my handle is Mr. Super Cloud. Um, (laughs) And I tweet about cloud and I tweet about milkshakes, especially milkshakes in the San Mateo County area of uh, Northern California. We've got some amazing milkshakes and I consider
0: myself quite the connoisseur. Um, (laughs) So yeah, or hit me up on LinkedIn, Chetan Venkatesh, my full name amazing. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat and share your vision. This is all super exciting. And we look forward to having you back on to share updates as you continue to build. Uh, Look forward to it. Thanks for the opportunity, Brett. Yeah, no problem. Keep in touch. Bye.